back to Radical Food with the Ramblin' Farmers. I'm your host, Logan Haley. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast where we discuss why and how we need to radically change our food system. I'm really excited to kick off season one with an amazing conversation I had with Jane Senecal of Earth Care Farm. I caught up with Jane at the recent Soil and Nutrition Conference in Southbridge, Massachusetts. The conference was hosted by the Bionutrient Food Association, and the whole conference really just got me thinking about what we're here for, like what radical food is all about. I created this podcast so that we can all learn together and start thinking in a different way so that we're able to bring about this sort of radical change that I'm talking about. We're going to have a super diverse range of guests that will allow us to get really unique perspectives from all different angles of the food system. Everyone from farmers to doctors, chefs, scientists, activists are going to come on Radical Food to teach us about the work that they're doing and the work that we can do to collectively uplift our society and create a radically different food system. (laughs) So with that, let's go to... The interview with Jane Senecal of Earth Care Farms. Y'all are listening to Radical Food. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thanks, Logan. Um, I'm wondering if you could start off just explaining to us what your farm does and kind of what makes it so special in terms of your familial history on the land. Sure, we have a real niche um, tucked in the woods of Rhode Island. We um, make compost at a large scale. That's the main thing that we do. But we also, we live in the middle of the farm in a farmhouse and we also grow crops and we have um, pasture raised black Angus beef cattle. (laughs) Very cool. Um, And so how did the farm get started? Can you take us back to the 70s when everything began? (laughs) Yeah, so um, my parents were part of that back to the land movement generation, kind of the hippie generation. And they grew up in suburban, my dad grew up in suburban New Jersey. My mom grew up in North Providence, neither of which had any farming background. And, um, but my dad just kind of fell in love with the idea of getting back to the land, reconnecting. And so they found the largest, cheapest piece of land they could. Um, They both went to school at the University of Rhode Island. So they happened to settle right near there where um, our farm is just about 10 miles from URI. And uh, it had, they didn't know much about land, although my dad didn't have quite a bit of soil background from school. Um, So he was looking for certain things with the soil, but to find a cheap piece of land, the soil he knew would need to be amended quite a bit. So um, they had to clear um, their driveway and they took the timber from that and made a farmhouse and um, slowly but surely started making some fields and realized they needed a lot more organic matter. And uh, um, also realizing um, at this time, my dad had studied turf grass management at URI and he only had this very chemically intensive training and it was really clashing culturally with his social um, just scene that he was into, the hippie scene. And um, he said he was like standing in the little home garden off the farmhouse, maybe the first or second year that they had bought the land. And he felt like he was struck by lightning and had this profound realization that 
true health comes from the soil. And it like just shook his whole belief system at the time. And he said he just had to re-educate himself from that moment on. And he was landscaping at the time and he just, he quit using any chemical fertilizers or pesticides in his landscape business, which was totally unheard of in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, changed the name of his business to the Organic Landscape Company. And then just started having to delve into what it meant to make a healthy soil. Um, and it was all about, for him, the fastest path was through making compost. And so he, um, there was no models out there at the time. So he kind of did a lot of trial and error and developed a really nice compost that he used on our farm fields and then used them for landscaping customers. And then that grew. Um, there started to be a good demand and he just ended up stopping landscaping and just making compost and farming at the farm. And it, it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger over time. <laughs> yeah, that's a super amazing story. And I was wondering also if you could share with the audience the story you told me about uh, scooping poop up after the circus and kind <laughs> of the eccentric sort of really innovative inputs your dad came up with to make the compost. Sure. So in the early days, he would just go around with a pickup truck and a pitchfork and collect materials. And um, he kind of intuitively knew that he wanted to have a real diverse range of ingredients, knowing that each different thing would add real diversity in nutrients, micronutrients, microorganisms. And so he would take us with us sometimes in um, the story I told the other night was that we would go to the Big Apple Circus, which is, came to our town every summer. And at the, we'd just go at the end of the show, pull up and pick up all the elephant manure from that day. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd have to help him shovel it into the truck and then drive away. So got to meet like behind the scenes carnies and uh, it was really interesting. Um, we'd have like a Sadie Hawkins dance in middle school and my dad would come to pick us up and he would say, Oh, grab those hay bales, that, the decorations around and all this, this corn stalks and everything. And he called it like developing an organic eye. Suddenly you see how much is around us that could become part of your compost. And you just think in a different way and like, oh, that, oh, ask them what they're doing with those coffee grinds. You know, it was always something like that. It was a funny background. So along those lines, could you explain to maybe some people who maybe have heard of compost, but they're not quite familiar with the jargon of soil science and farming, like what really is organic matter and why is it important? Okay, so organic matter basically comes down to um, carbon-rich material that just comes from the earth. And um, there's so many reasons why it's important, Mm -hmm. Um, but to kind of just put it in a succinctly, Um, carbon is the building block block of life and um, when it's in the soil it's a a habitat for life for microorganism life and it has an amazing way if you have these kind of this structure this apartment building under the ground for life um, this life does amazing things with plant roots so as the plant is growing and taking energy from the sun and magically pretty much. I mean, I know we know the science, but it's still amazing Mm -hmm. turning that into sugars and exuding that through its root system and feeding these little microorganisms. The microorganisms are releasing all this wonderful nutrition to the plant roots. And at the same time, those sugars the plant provided is this carbon structure that could continually be built up into the soil, taking that carbon out of our atmosphere and storing it deeply in our soils where it belongs. 
<laughs> and that's and that's the process of carbon sequestration, right? Which is yeah. just a fancy word for <laughs> yeah. like sucking carbon out of the air and putting it into the soil. Yeah. And so in composting, carbon materials are um, you need a mix of carbon and nitrogenous materials, and so simply carbon materials. The way I look at it is the materials that absorb odors in composting, and so that would be wood chips and leaves and bedding, straw, that kind of thing. It's if you think about, none of those things really smell bad. Mm -hmm. They're a wonderful medium for bulking up if you're going to be taking in the smellier things like food scraps and fish and seaweeds and manures. Mm -hmm. You need a lot more of that carbon material as sort of like if you're making bread dough, I think of it as the flour. And you need a little bit of water, but you need a lot more flour to bulk in there to make a nice texture. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> analogy. And I was wondering also if you could share that little funny story of when the composting first started and your dad didn't quite have the ratios right yet and you had a fly infestation <laughs> and, and the other little details that made that funny and a uh, great learning experience. Yeah, I mean, there were so many of those stories, but um, yeah, so when you're mixing, you really have to be thorough. And when you're done mixing your compost, that you know, if you're putting your food scraps in, you got to make sure you have a carbon as the exterior of the compost pile. You don't want food scraps showing through there because that's good food for flies to lay eggs. And then you have maggots and then you have you can have a huge outburst of fly population that happened to us in the early 80s. And um, there was like my dad was talking to different people about it. And the biggest people were like, oh, you can do this spray. You can spray and kill the. And he was like, no, it doesn't sound right. So he had us get together that summer, me and my brother and sister, and we built dozens and dozens of birdhouses and put them all around the farm. And it did take a little while, but by the next season, we had an incredible bird population and no problem with flies. And even today, we have an amazing amount of bird diversity at the farm and bats, like naturally occurring bats. And um, we have some flies because we are a farm, but it's it's just totally a normal amount, you know, a couple. It's, it's so great. They just keep things in balance. So it's, I think the whole purpose of it is to think about how can we support nature to bring about the balance that it already wants to provide for us um, or for itself, I guess, really. We're part of that as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you have found kind of the the happy medium between your carbon and nitrogen inputs into the compost. Could you describe really briefly your ratio and also some of those other eccentric um, <laughs> inputs that, that you've acquired over the years? Sure. So um, if you're composting, if you're wanting to compost at home, I would keep a stockpile of carbon materials on site. It's no big deal to just have a little pile of with chips or straw or leaves. You need a lot of that on hand. So we always have a mountain of carbon um, on hand. And then, um, and our carbon, like I kind of said before, is leaves, wood chips, you know, food. Um, we actually get coffee bean chafe, which is when they roast the bean. It's this outer shell. Um, tea leaf that comes in like these 12 ton truckloads at a time. It's really interesting wow. stuff, but it's almost like, looks like peat moss. Um, it's all carbon kind of stuff. And then, we make a kind of a bowl or a nest with our carbon. And so every time a truck of nitrogenous stuff comes down the driveway to be, to be dumped, we, they dump it in this kind of nest. So it's, there's no runoff from juices um, and uh, it's caught in there. And then we cover it with more carbon and mix it up. And our nitrogenous sources are um, fish scraps because we're in Rhode Island. So it's a really marine rich state, seaweed, shellfish, Manures, we've um, 
had a relationship with the Roger Williams Zoo for over three decades that we take the animal manures, the giant elephant poops and things. It's pretty awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> There's some neat things about elephant manure. It has a, a unique fungi. Just, just, in, just that manure has its own special fungi that we haven't seen in any other um, manures. So it's, it's just neat what you can if you develop that organic eye. <laughs> so that ends up at about a 30 to one ratio, 30 parts carbon to one part nitrogen. Yes, and it's not like 30 scoops of, car of that pile to one scoop of the nitrogen rich material. You have to think about each thing is composed of different amounts of carbon and nitrogen. And, the, and you get a feel for it over time, but there are charts if you wanna have it in the beginning, get a feel for what those things are. But like manures, less nitrogen than fish. Um, so you can figure out you'll need more carbon for that, uh, that carbon pile for your fish than you do for your manures. But yeah, 30 to one is the ratio you're aiming for. <laughs> that makes sense. So shifting gears a little bit, I know that your dad was running the compost business and was doing his organic landscaping. And now you have taken over the business um, and you also have your own landscaping business. Could you talk about that generational transition and um, how you've maintained both of those parts of the businesses at the same time. Yeah, uh, I would. My dad ended his landscaping business. I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, um, and then it was just a few years ago. He's as he got older, it got harder and harder to really physically run the farm. Um, it's a hard thing for this this older generation to to accept, and there wasn't. He'd never really had a plan of what that would be. I have a brother and sister. We all were kind of established in our own things. And um, we just, it came to a point where we either had to, my dad said, I just can't do this. We either have to sell the farm, which was very hard to envision, um, find a manager, what, what are we going to do? And um, I just went to bed that, like, that night after that meeting and um, woke up like in the middle of the night so profoundly feeling like I really wanted to run the farm and thinking that I could do it while having my fine gardening business. It's like a like landscaping, but we take care of estates in the area and more it's more vegetable gardening. Um, and it does, it dovetails really nicely. I've had to find a manager to take care of the service, the gardening service, so I can be at the farm more, but it's worked really, really well. And um, my dad, we, um, my husband's a carpenter. He built an amazing attached in-law apartment. And that's all first floor living. It's really made us think about housing so much and how really you need to think about aging in place. If you wanna be in a place for a while, make sure there's a first floor bedroom because it's almost ubiquitous that stairs get to be really dangerous and challenging as you get older. and have a bathroom downstairs that's walker accessible. Just make your doorway a little bit wider. And just kind of, if you think about little things that are not expensive, they're no different in cost to do, um, it makes it so you can stay in your home longer. So it's, it's made me think about that. Every time now my husband is building a house or doing an addition, he makes little changes so that people can age there um, and stay there. But. Uh, I, I don't. I got a little off track. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, it totally did. I yeah. love. I love those little tangents because yeah. we get to learn more of the details of the family farm. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jane is an amazing manager, and she has done a lot of research into how to best um, manage her crews, how to offer really great um, services and learning opportunities to her employees. 
um, in both the composting on farm business as well as the fine gardening landscaping business. Mm -hmm. So could you share with us some of the resources you've used and like your management philosophy? Sure. I, I think it's just like being a decent human being is like just a part of it. And like, I can't be around someone and not care for them. So I think that that's just kind of part of everything that we're doing is about caring for either the soil or the land or the people, you know, that's just what it's about. Um, and so I, I found that like I wanted everyone to feel as connected to the land and the soil as we could. And the best way to do that is to just bring them into every aspect and really explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. And it really just happened this spring that every other Thursday, so it's really just twice a month, in the afternoon, we take an hour, maybe an hour and a half, sometimes two hours if needed, to get really in-depth with some topic. And I let the crew choose. We choose a few things um, at the beginning of the season. And then so as it came up through the season, somebody said, you know what, I'd really like to learn more about body mechanics and ergonomics. And so we pulled somebody in that helped if she's a chiropractor and a yoga teacher. And this is how we should move our bodies. And show me how you guys are lifting those crates. And let's do some stretches for wrists and hands because we do so much wrist work. And it's very common after quite a few years that you end up with like this carpal tunnel syndrome and uh, just things to prevent that. You know, I was like, oh, that's is simple. And then somebody was like, you know, I really don't even know how to open a checking account. We have simple stuff like that, or how do we plan? Like, how do we get, we can have savings or, so we did a, just a talk, a basic general kind of finance talk and budgeting. And um, then we did a whole afternoon on the microscope work. So everybody in all parts of the business, even the, the guy who mostly just drives the tractor is there to see, oh man, okay. Look at what's under the, look at, I can't see this as I'm working, but under the microscope, there's an entire world and um, oh, we've had so many, so many cool things. We just had one on, on my fine gardening crew. We make these um, cool kokodama. They're like these Japanese moss gardens. So it ended up being last Friday because the Thursday wasn't available, but we made these really cool moss gardens. <laughs> it's, it doesn't seem related, but beauty is part of the farm too. And um, we just find that like, if you keep a space really beautiful, people care for it more. And uh, so that's just what it's about. I, that's my management style, care. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. And how many employees do you have on the farm? Um, really, there's four full-time at the farm, a handful of part-time, depending on the season, and then the fine gardening service, there's 10 of us. Um, we, Very cool. Yeah, it's neat. So as far as like on-farm tasks and um, the, the crop side of things versus the compost side of things, what is the employee division there and... Um, also, what are you growing? We haven't even talked about yeah. that yet. Yeah. So I have two guys that are full-time on compost production. Um, and then I manage that. But they're really amazing. They're really amazing um, operators of the equipment. That's like one thing, yeah, that's so valuable. Um, and then one gal who's office manager slash field work. <laughs> it's an interesting combination and she rocks it. Um, and then um, a part-time field employee um, that helps in the in the fields as well as helping with bagging compost. Um, there's a lot of overlap between everything. And then generally I take care of the field work myself with a handful of the part-time employees in the season. So um, and it, so in the fields we grow garlic. 
Um, that's one of our main crops. I, um, I love garlic so much because it's just like the opposite season of everything else. You plant it in the fall and harvest it in the summer and there's always something to do with it. And it's just so healing, uh, so, so medicinal. I love it. Um, I've been saving seed for 20 years this year. So 1999 is when I first bought seed and wow. I haven't bought it since. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then we'd grow rhubarb. So my dad put a rhubarb patch in in 1977 and we've divided it and it, it's gotten bigger, but it's the same stock plants from 1977 and it's a great crop. It's not everybody's favorite, but it's my goal to make rhubarb super sexy um, and I'm <laughs> working it hard. So, um, and then we have a lot of herbs that we grow. Um, the traditionals, basil, oregano, chives, uh, parsley, but then we go bee balm, lemon balm, ashwagandha, and uh, borage, and I don't know, a little bit of ginger and turmeric. Um, and then uh, I teach a lot of gardening classes. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the field. And you also part. do sweet potatoes, right? Yes. Um, so we grow a lot of different things, but I would say on the sweet potatoes, we grow like maybe 50 row feet. It's not oh, okay. a huge amount. Like, and then the salad mix is, is a small part too. Yeah, and that actually is, we sell some to restaurants, but it's mostly for the staff so that we can have greens all winter, our family cool. and the staff, yeah. Well, perfect bridge into how and where do you sell your compost and where do you sell your vegetables? What are your sales channels? Okay, so the compost traditionally and, and still most of the sales are right from the farm. Uh, people come with pickup trucks, dump trucks, they come and get a bag. Um, but we are at like 25 garden centers, um, have our stuff at their retail centers, um, mostly Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and, uh, starting to expand a little bit from there, but that's the, that's the majority of it. And then our produce, um, is mostly sold to restaurants, uh, in our area. Yeah. We cool. used to have a CSA, but I focus more energy on the compost and just directly to restaurants and a couple grocery chains for the rhubarb. <laughs> awesome. So I'm really curious about why, like, what makes your farm really radically different from, of course, from the mainstream agriculture in the United States, but even a lot of the organic agriculture in the United States? Um, gosh. Um, for... I mean, there's just a lot of thought that goes into the compost process, I think. And it just, I, I don't like to like compare myself to other farms necessarily, but generally the thing, the feedback I get the most is that when you drive into the farm, you get a sense, uh, like there's a lot of inspiration that you feel it's it's a weird thing for me to say, but that's it's something I hear over and over and over again. You feel mm -hmm. and you feel. You say, people say, "Wow, this is so cared for." We're really like, I, I've seen a lot of farms with the broken down equipment over there behind that wall and piles of stuff and piles of that. And I, I totally understand how that happens and it happens so quickly. Mm -hmm. But um, just being up on caring for every piece of your property and understanding how it all influences um, the bigger picture of just really um, caring and knowing your land and knowing that it's really not, it's you're here to just take care of it temporarily and there's, you want to make it better for the next people after you. And hopefully it's your children, but it might not be, and but that doesn't matter. It's, you know, we want to make it better for them, mm -hmm. for the future. 
and bringing those care ethics to like an ecological mindset using your organic eye right because y'all your compost is omri certified for for certified organic production yeah um but it seems like you go far above and beyond just the organic standards in terms of your ecological management practices yeah um once you're realizing that you're wanting to care for these little microorganisms it's just there's just this you want to care for everything at every level so yes the soil and all the microbes but the plants and then you can't ignore the birds and the animals and then the entire water resource um it's we're on an island and everybody is and we're all connected and you can't really separate yourself from anything else so might as well just do the best you can with it and care for it totally (laughs) So. so on a broader level why do you think we need to really radically change um, the existing food system? Um, it, it's a little bit broken right now, and there's pockets of amazing things happening. But if we just continue on this tra- trajectory, I'm concerned about just the quality of food that we're producing and the health of humans. Like. I'm just hearing that for for the first time in the history of the U.S. recording this, like our lifespan is getting shorter. And I, I want to, I want people to live long, happy, healthy lives. And um, agriculture can have a huge, huge impact on that. And it's really not that hard. None of it needs any expensive technologies or anything. We have everything we need. Um, So I I just think it's time that we understand the value really of soil. If we can get to that point, then we're in good shape. So (laughs) awesome. And the compost is the the conditioner and the sweet stuff that makes the soil really, really function. It is a major boost. It is a major, amazingly awesome, just substrate for life to flourish in. So uh, make your own or come buy some from us, but make your own too. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so we could just end with what advice would you have to um, aspiring farmers or beginning farmers um, who are interested in no-till vegetables or compost or any sort of organic agriculture? Um, I think my advice would be that there's going to be whatever you're into, follow that passionate thing and make it your niche and stick with it because there's going to be hard times for sure. And it's easy to throw in the towel, but I'm just getting to see for the first time my dad who stuck with it for those 40 years and now has something like so beautiful and amazing to pass on and um, to the next generation. And like, we need a lot more people to do that. So stick with it. (laughs) Cool, thank you so much, Jane. You're welcome, thanks. glad you joined us today on Radical Food. This podcast is produced and edited by the Ramlin Farmers. I'm your host, Logan Haley, and I'd like to thank our Ramblin Farmers patrons, Shannon, Rose, Leah, Kevin, Bo, and Andrew. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, feel free to head over to patreon.com slash Farmers. We'd also love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to Radical Food so you'll get notified of any future podcasts. Thank you to our good friend Foxy Blues for the beautiful cello music.
and you can explore all relevant links and information in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, y'all. Have a good one.